Good morning. You know, with the snow outside, I'm not sure if I should say Happy Thanksgiving or Merry Christmas, so we'll go with both this morning. You know, during the greeting time, uh, my friend Bob walked up to me and handed me a bag of Swedish fish and said, these are yours if the sermon's less than 20 minutes. So, uh, Bob, I'll be handing these back after the sermon. <laughs> well, why don't we go to the Lord in a word of prayer? Father, what a joy it is to be together as your church family here at Highland today, as we open your word, as we hear from you. May you speak to our hearts. May your spirit fill us and illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand the truths that you want us to see in your word today. May we not just be hearers of the word only, uh, but may we be doers of the word, putting into practice the truths that we uh, see this morning. We give our time to you. We're excited to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you saw the weather this morning, Isaac, but it's snowing. Sam, I'm just really, really excited for the staff golf outing that's tomorrow, all right? My team is going to dominate. You know, Isaac, weather aside, I've golfed with you before, and you have what I call the super slice. See, you have to aim about 60 degrees to the left for that ball to ever have a chance of landing back in the fairway. What do you mean your team's going to dominate? You know, you're right. Sam, I'm, I'm really not a good golfer at all, but for being honest, we could both say that at least I'm better than Pastor Jared. You know, I'm not going to lie, that's a fact. Let me tell you a true story about Pastor Jared. We were golfing together one time, Pastor Jeff was with us, and we were somewhere on the fairway. I was kind of a little ahead of Jared, but way off to the right. And he pulls out his three-wood, and I swear he aimed for me. That golf ball whizzed past my head at 115 miles an hour. Pastor Jeff thought he had to hire a new young adults pastor. Hey, in all fairness to Jared, though, he said that was an accident, all right? Sure. It's a new year, Sam. Sure. Like I said, we're going to dominate. I found the secret to my golf game. You know, Pastor Jeff really stacked the teams this year. He, Pastor Dave, who went to college on a golf scholarship, and Jeff Weiss are all on the same team. And remember, Jared is on your team. You can't dominate. Like you said, though, I'm not worried. I found the secret, Sam. The secret? Did you finally take golf lessons with Pastor Dave? No. Do you think it's that schnazzy golf polo that you're wearing? This raggedy old thing? I got this from your closet, Sam. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Are you going to fast and pray all day tomorrow? Like, come on, what's the secret? <sighs> to be honest, the secret is I was reading in my Bible in Philippians 4.13, and when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It really made me think about Steph Curry when he writes Philippians 4.13 on his shoes. And it motivated me, and I realized I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if I want to shoot a hole-in-one, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. If I want to shoot back-to-back -back birdies, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. And if the youth team is going to win the staff golf outing, we can do that because it's through Christ who strengthens us. So that's my secret, Sam. Just don't tell anybody, okay? Oh, don't worry. Your secret is very safe with me. <laughs> but it's time for you to head off stage, go back to the driving range so I can preach. So let's thank Isaac for helping illustrate our text. But sometimes I'm glad I'm not the young guy around here anymore. Oh. You've probably heard that verse before, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him 
through Christ who strengthens me or gives me strength. That's a great text. Many would call it their life verse. But maybe the most common way to interpret Philippians 4.13 is exactly what Isaac just did. It's what we'd call the athletic interpretation. I can do anything. I can accomplish anything. I can complete the sale. I can win the game through Christ who gives me strength. And if you've been with us on Monday night for young adults, I often share the three most important rules of hermeneutics, the three most important rules of how to interpret the Bible. It goes like this, context, context, context. And if we want to understand Philippians 4.13, all we need to do is read the context. And if we go back a couple verses to verse 10, we'll understand that Paul's intended meaning is a little bit different than the way that Isaac interpreted the text this morning. Now, if you're like Isaac or maybe a professional athlete that has used kind of that athletic accomplishment interpretation, I don't want you to feel bad. It's probably the most common way that you and I could interpret or read this verse. And when a professional athlete includes Jesus in the end goal, I find that commendable. It's uh, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart, or 1 Corinthians 10.31, glorify God in, in whatever you do. When a professional athlete uses sports as a means to a greater end, to making Jesus' name known, that's, that's a commendable thing. Yet if we limit Philippians 4.13 to just mean something that I accomplish, I can do anything, we're selling Paul's intended meaning incredibly short. We'll find a far richer meaning when we look at the context. So if you have your Bible, turn, to me with, turn with me to Philippians 4. We'll be in 10 to 13 this morning. But as you're turning there, just consider these illustrations, which are a little different than Isaac's interpretation. Think of Travis. Travis just turned 15. He's been waiting for years to get behind the wheel of his 2008 Nissan Sentra. And thanks to a, a new law in Wisconsin that didn't exist when I was his age, you can get your learner's permit the day you turn 15. So he dragged his parents to the DMV. He gets his temps. And a couple weeks in, he realizes it's not that fun to have the backseat driver in the front seat, and he really wants to drive by himself. He counts down the days until he turns 16, passes the test, gets his license. And that's not quite as satisfying as he wants. He wants his friends in the backseat, so he has to wait another nine months before he can get his restrictions off. Travis thought he would find contentment behind the wheel of his 2008 Nissan Sentra, but he didn't. Or consider Tiffany. She's been working at the agency for three years, but ever since day one, she had her eyes set on this next promotion. She wanted to become a manager. But the company was dragging their feet, and finally, after her third annual review, they promote her to manager, and she gets all of the benefits. The new office, instead of a cubicle, more vacation time, more pay, more power, more influence, more leadership. But three weeks in, she's not as satisfied as she thought she'd be, and she's already looking ahead to that next promotion and whatever she can do to get there. Well, then there's Tracy. Tracy's 35. She's been single for a long time. And she's pleading with the Lord. She's been praying this prayer for years, a great desire and a good prayer to pray. Father, I want a relationship. Hasn't gone past the second date in years. I tried the new Facebook dating. That hasn't worked. And even though she's begging God for a relationship, the prayer seems to be falling on deaf ears and she's falling more and more discontent. And then there's Tom. Tom, he was at the top of the sports world. 
He'd won not one, not two, but three Super Bowls in his young career, and he was cementing himself in the Hall of Fame, changing the course of the game forever. But in a 2005 interview on 60 Minutes, Tom Brady was transparent, and he said, quote, I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. In his honesty, Tom Brady admitted that he did not find the contentment, he didn't find the satisfaction that he was looking for on top of the mountain after a string of Super Bowl victories, and he was feeling discontent. See, even though those first three stories are fictitious, the fourth was not, it was true, I'm guessing we all can relate. We know the feeling. Either we find ourselves in the valley looking up at the mountaintop thinking, if I just get there, then I'll be happy. Or we find ourselves on top of the mountain accomplishing what we set out to accomplish and we feel like, this is it. I thought I'd feel something at least a little better than than this. See, it's deeper than disappointment, isn't it? It's the feeling of discontent. You and I live in a world that thrives on discontent. It's the mantra behind Black Friday, isn't it? See, all the advertisers, whether that's on TV, whether that's on Instagram or Facebook, they're all trying to get you to believe, get me to believe, if I just had this thing, then I would be happy. It's a tool the enemy uses. Trying to get us to feel discontent, to lure us into chasing after things that promise to satisfy, but they never deliver, leaving us more broken than we'd expect. See, whether... You recognize it or not, all of us are on a journey searching for lasting contentment. And in our text this morning, just a couple verses before Philippians 4.13, Paul tells us, I've found, I've learned the secret of contentment. See, Philippians 4.10-13, it's not about winning a game, it's not about completing a sale, it's about the secret of contentment as a Christian And if we miss Paul's intended meaning, then you and I run the risk of continuing our discontented, less than satisfied lives when the possibility of true joy and lasting contentment are right in front of us. So for this text to make sense, we need a little bit of background. Paul is writing the book of Philippians from prison, and this wasn't the Marriott. It's not the Hilton. This was not posh. Roman prisons were terrible. They were cold. They were dark. They were damp. Paul even needed to provide his own food And when he did, he had to share it with his prison mates, Tom, Jerry, and all of their furry friends. This was not an ideal living situation for Paul. With that in mind, look at verse 10. It says this. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Let me pause there. A little bit of background. This isn't the first time that Paul's been in prison, not the first time that Paul's been in need. And Paul is actually writing a thank you letter to the church in Philippi. For the second time, they'd contributed to Paul's needs financially, giving him what I can assume is a pretty large financial gift so that he can survive while he's in prison. They've done it not once, but twice. And just like you and I would write a thank you card after we receive a gift, Paul does the same thing. One of his purposes in writing the book of Philippians is to say thank you but he wants to clarify what he's thankful for. He doesn't necessarily thank them for the financial gift. He says, 
Thank you for your, your love for me. Paul's expressing gratitude over his care, over their concern for him. He doesn't want them to think that he's trying to manipulate them into a second gift. He doesn't want them to think it's this false sense of gratitude so they can give to him again. No, Paul wants to be clear. He's not asking for more money. And that's what he says in verse 11. Keep following along with me. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Did you catch that Paul said in whatever or in any situation? That's true for Paul, isn't it? Think about all of the different type of life situations that Paul walked through. Beatings and imprisonments, shipwrecks, famine, hunger, evictions, prison cells, trials, courtrooms, the demonic and false teachers. He faced thousands of frustrating obstacles. But then think about the other side. Paul saw incredible ministry fruit and success. He preached in front of thousands. He evangelized one-on-one. He saw dozens of church, churches planted and leaders trained. He saw an incredible growth of the gospel throughout the world. He healed people. He saw God work through him in an incredible way. What I would expect is Paul to say, my contentment tank, it's full when I'm in the pulpit. But when I'm in prison, it's empty. But Paul's saying, whether I'm in the pulpit whether I'm in prison, my contentment tank is full. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Those are financial terms. He's saying, I know when I have plenty of money in my bank account and I've also walked through the pain of an overdraft fee. That's what he's saying. Remember when Paul lived in Philippi, when he visited the church there? Do you remember who he lived with? Actually, a very wealthy woman named Lydia we know that she was wealthy because she was a dealer of purple goods, of purple clothing. That was the, the color of royalty. It means that she herself certainly had money to be a dealer of purple goods. And she had a house that was big enough to have Paul and Silas and maybe Luke and others live with them. She was a wealthy woman. I imagine that when Paul was staying with Lydia, he was eating ribeyes for dinner. Do you think he was eating ribeyes for dinner when he was in prison? Yeah, I don't think so. See, he knew what it was like to have a life of provision he also knew what it was like to find himself in a jail cell. He faced plenty and hunger. He faced abundance and need. He lived through every life circumstance. And somehow he learned sufficiency. He learned a steadiness that was beyond his life situation. See, the key for you and I to understand our text comes from one word, the word content. It's the Greek word autarkes. A couple weeks ago, when Andrew preached from Philippians chapter 2, he taught us what a hapex legomenon is. Do you remember that? If you don't, I'll refresh your memory. It's a term that describes a word in the New Testament that appears only one time. That's the Greek word autarkes, which is translated content. This is the only time it's used throughout the entire New Testament. And Paul chose it very intentionally. Let me explain. This was a philosophical term. It was used in Stoic ethics. It means a, a self-sufficiency, a total independence. But for the Stoic, it was the essence, it was the center of all virtues, was this self-sufficiency. That's Autarkes. So Paul uses the word with intention in Philippians, but 
he changes the definition, doesn't he? Because for Paul, sufficiency does not mean complete and total independence. For Paul, sufficiency begins with dependence, with an other sufficiency. For Paul, the secret to Christian contentment requires an abiding connection to Christ. For Paul, the secret to sufficiency is satisfaction in his Savior. And that's when he says, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him. That's Christ who strengthens me. All things. It's the Greek word panta. It can't mean everything. So to determine what all things mean, we have to look at the context. And the context is clear. All things means any life situation, any circumstance. How you and I could translate Philippians 4.13 would be something like this. I can find contentment in the midst of any life situation because Christ gives me strength. The Greek word for strengthened, it means to be empowered. For Paul, this wasn't a self-sufficiency. It's not a self-empowerment. For Paul, the strength comes from the power of his resurrected Savior. Paul learned how to face any circumstance with contentment because of his connection to Christ. So in one word, what's the secret to Christian contentment? Jesus. What a great Sunday school answer. And if I had to guess, that probably leaves you feeling a little bit discontent because we did not come to church today for a Sunday school answer. So maybe we need a little more nuance. So to get there, let's, let's flip it around. If we don't find contentment in Christ, then we find contentment in our circumstances. We find contentment in ourselves. We find contentment in other people. If I just had blank, then I'd be happy. If I just had blank, then I'd be content. What's the blank for you? If I could just winter anywhere besides the frozen tundra, then I'd be content. If I could just get that promotion, then I'd finally be satisfied. If we could buy that dream house or that dream car, then, then I'd be happy. If we could live closer to our kids, our grandkids, then, then I'd be satisfied. Or if my spouse and I, if we could have kids of our own, then I'd be content. If the Lord would just reverse this diagnosis, then, then I'd be happy. If God would take away my chronic pain or my trial and mental health, then, then I would be content. See, these are things that you and I have begged God for. We've pleaded with God for. We've prayed for, maybe for years of our life. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. Those are incredible and important things to bring before the Lord. But the gap between a prayer request And an answered prayer can lead to discontentment in a hurry. And many of you are living in the gap right now. Many of us walked in the door today, are watching online this morning, and are walking through incredible pain. And if that's you, I'm so sorry. But all of us 
can find encouragement from Paul because he didn't find contentment in his circumstances. He found contentment in the midst of his circumstances. He found contentment through his circumstances, not in his circumstances. Paul says, I have learned. In the Greek, that's an ongoing action that's completed in the past. In other words, Paul is saying, I have come to know through experience the secret of contentment. See, without Paul's circumstances, he would have never learned contentment. His circumstances taught him contentment. They didn't magically provide contentment. So is contentment, is it learned or is it given? Well, the answer is yes. Because contentment begins when we have a relationship with Christ. Because each one of us must come to that place in our life where where we see our sin. And we see that our sin has caused a gap between us and God, a gap that we could never dream of crossing. We have to understand, believe that Jesus, our King and our Savior, came and lived, died, and rose again in our place. That if anyone would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they'll be saved. Each one of us must come to a place in our life where we put our faith, our trust in Jesus as our Savior and as our King. It's the most important decision we can make. It's the only place that we can find lasting contentment. If a man like Tom Brady, who's accomplished everything, the only place someone like him can find lasting contentment, it's not in sports, it's not in money, it's in Jesus Christ. Now, when that relationship with Christ begins, I don't know when that was for you. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was decades ago. But when that relationship with Christ begins, are we instantly content? <laughs> maybe, maybe you were. I wasn't. See, contentment as a Christian is a lifelong process, a journey with Jesus. Contentment for Paul didn't begin the moment he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. It was a process of a journey with Jesus throughout the span of of his entire life. Now, I'm thankful that Paul gives us some ideas, that as we walk through pain, as we walk through trials, as we, as we walk through things that challenge our contentment, Paul gives us a couple ideas on how we can grow in our contentment. Maybe think of it this way. It's that time of year with Thanksgiving behind us, Christmas pretty close down the road, that we start putting up our Christmas decorations and our Christmas lights. Now, maybe you're one of those people looks at the forecast and realizes a couple weeks ago, it's a pretty warm weekend. I'm going to get my Christmas lights up now so I don't have to worry about it in the snow. And if you're not one of those people, you're regretting it on a day like today, right? Well, Pastor Andrew is one of those people. A couple weeks ago, he looked at the forecast, saw that it was going to be a warm November weekend and said, I'm getting my Christmas lights up now. So, Drives down to Home Depot, spends $1,000 on Christmas lights. He gets, he gets one of those light-up snowmen. He gets the lasers. You know, he wants Clark from Christmas Vacation to be proud, right? He wants Elf to be proud and say, this guy has Christmas spirit. So he spends all day on a Saturday afternoon setting up all of his Christmas lights. And the sun goes down. It's just dark enough to see the lights. He goes to that power strip, clicks the on button, nothing. What a terrible feeling. So what do you do? 
Well, you go to those light bulbs one by one and you start troubleshooting. Oh, oh what, what a terrible feeling. That doesn't work. Gets on the phone with Home Depot. Says, I think you gave me faulty equipment. They, they can't help him out. He even changes his breaker box, changes the fuse in his breaker box. Nothing. So finally, he realizes, what am I doing? I've got to call my friend who's a master electrician. So I show up at his front step. <laughs> and it took me all of seven minutes to find out what the problem was. He didn't plug in the power strip. <laughs> Is that a true story? Of course not. I made the whole thing up. But it illustrates a point. What good are Christmas lights if you don't plug them in? What good is a Christian if they're not plugged into Christ? Jesus is our power source. We are powerless without Christ. What good is a Christian if they're not plugged into Christ? So if you're taking notes this morning, I just have two principles. Here's the first. Stay plugged into Christ. Stay plugged into Christ. Paul knew where his power came from. On Monday nights and young adults, we've been going through Ephesians, which has just been a great study for us. And Paul has a prayer that gives us an idea of what this power looks like in our life. It's the end of chapter 3. I just want to read part of that, 314 through part of 17 in Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you see the word power? Verse 16. That, you may, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. The Greek word for strengthened, same word family, as the word I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in our text. They're related, that we might be strengthened with power. So where, where does that power come from? What's well, verse 17? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We experience the power of Christ. We stay plugged in when Jesus is dwelling in us. The Greek word for dwell, it's, it's not a hotel not a tent. It's not an Airbnb. It's a picture of Jesus making himself at home in the living room of our heart. Then we experience the power of Christ living and working through us. Well, how do we do that? How do we make Jesus at home in the living room of our hearts? I know our first reaction is going to be, well, I've got to do more. I've I've got to read the Bible more. I've got to pray more. I've got to serve more. I've got to go to church more. I've got to be better, and then I'll be plugged into Christ more. See, if you read the rest of Paul's prayer, all of Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, and he's talking about the power of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, there's not one action, there's not one do in that entire text. Being precedes doing. We need to be with Jesus before we can think about all the things that we should do for Jesus. Those things are important. They're good. But we start with spending time with Jesus in the living room of our heart. I'm convinced so many of us have uncovered just a fraction of the joy and the depth of our relationship with Christ because we just keep walking past the living room. Netflix, work, school, friends, hobbies, everything, it, it seems to crowd out the time that we get with Christ. 
that's a priority problem for me, isn't it? But if someone is, is not spending time with Jesus in the living room of their heart, they shouldn't be surprised that they're struggling deeply with discontentedness. We want to find contentment like Paul. It's separated from our circumstances. It begins by spending time with Christ. So where do you start? Well, the Gospels would be a great place to start. Maybe Matthew, maybe Mark. Not reading it just to check the box. Say, well, I did my quiet time today. Reading it with the goal of knowing Jesus, of staying plugged into Jesus. If that's our goal when we spend time in Scripture, I think we'll be amazed at what we find. So for Paul, his relationship with Christ, it began on the Damascus Road but it deepened throughout the course of his life. Jesus was so real to Paul that by the time he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, his relationship with Christ was so dynamic, it was so profound. This is what he said in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. What a profound statement. Jesus became the most important person in Paul's life. He could not wait to be reunited with Jesus in glory. And yes, Paul had met Jesus on the Damascus Road, but that's not what I would call a cordial coffee meeting. Last time I checked, Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is not starting off the relationship on the right foot. But as Paul repented by the power of the Holy Spirit, as he ran after Jesus with his heart and his life, that relationship, it it deepened, it progressed over time, so much so that when Paul writes this letter, he can't wait to see Jesus again. Paul knew about the great promotion that was waiting for him in glory and his remarkable reunion with Christ. And that's our second principle this morning, value Jesus above life itself. What do you and I value most? A relationship? Our job? Our family? Our education? our reputation? What's the most important thing in our life? Paul valued Jesus as his greatest treasure. You're still in Philippians. Look at chapter 3, where Paul writes this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. For Paul, there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. He valued his relationship with Christ above literally everything else. Paul calls the rest of his life, his resume, all of his accomplishments, he calls them rubbish in the English translation. That's a G-rated translation. I'm okay with that in the ESV, but the word that Paul used was the Greek word skubalon. Um, Maybe the most literal translation would be dung, literally. That's how this would have been received by the audience. Paul is saying that Jesus is of so much value, so much worth in my life that everything else is like Scubalon. Jesus is that much better. Maybe we can think of it this way. Imagine someone grows up in Wausau their entire life and they're an avid hiker. They love going to Rib Mountain. They hike the Quarry Trail. They go up into the Observation Tower. The fall is their favorite time of year. They hike it five days a week, every day, until they turn 25. 
But starting the year after their 25th birthday, they go on a hiking trip. They make their way out to Angel's Landing in Zion National Park. They hike around Half Dome in Yosemite. They do the Grinnell Glacier Trail in Glacier National Park. They even summit Mount Rainier in Washington. And after all of these incredible hikes, then they come back and hike Red Mountain again. How impressed do you think they're going to be with the 700 feet of elevation gain? Not very. Now, did anything in Wausau change? Nothing. The only thing that changed was their perspective. See, that's what happens when we get to know Jesus. It's not that our resume, it's not that our accomplishments are of any less value. It's that Jesus is just so much greater. Paul experienced such profound joy in his relationship with Jesus that by comparison, everything else was scubalon. And that same joy, that same depth, that same relationship is available to you and me today. Well, I don't know about you, but after taking a deep dive into Paul's life, I feel like I have a long way to go. And maybe you feel the same way. Remember, contentment as a Christian is a lifelong journey of connecting to Christ. Our contentment will grow the greater our connection to our Savior. So we need to start by spending time with Jesus in the living room of our heart. We need to stay plugged into Christ, and he promises that our contentment will grow. The secret to Christian contentment is not a magic prayer. It's not a phrase. The secret is a person, Jesus. There is nothing better than knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, after looking at Paul's life, I feel, maybe many of us feel, that we have a long way to go. But we're thankful for our Savior who lived and died and rose in our place that we could have life, that we could have a relationship with you. Fill us with joy and with gratitude this morning for what you've done for us. And this week, allow us to uncover in a new way some of the depth, the value, the joy that we can experience in a relationship with you. Forgive us for the moments when we look outside of you for our contentment, for our value, for our purpose, for our satisfaction. And may a deepening and growing connection to Christ be the place that we find our meaning, our value, and our significance, and our contentment. In Jesus' name.